Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Monday, February 14th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, speed skiing, synchronized skating, ski ballet, and other rejected sports from the Olympics. Plus, remember that SpaceX rocket stage headed for the moon? Turns out it is a different piece of rocket junk, not from SpaceX at all. And the tropical disease that may be on the verge of eradication in humans. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. It's the final week of the Winter Olympics, and as controversy continues to brew in multiple directions for the current games, I thought I'd take a look back at some absolutely wild sporting events that used to be briefly included in the Winter Olympics past. Now, I've talked before about demonstration sports, sports that are showcased at the Olympic Games more so to promote the sport, possibly for future inclusion, rather than for standard medal competition. It's often a sport that is popular in the host country, like the U.S. has included American football and Belgium has included korfball. In the Winter Games, however, we've got some other interesting events that were once included. In 1932 and 1952, the Olympics actually had sled dog racing, which of course is still a very popular non-Olympic event, think the Iditarod. And another animal event was ski joring in 1928, which is like wakeboarding on snow, but with a horse instead of a boat. So literally, a person on skis holds onto a rope attached to a horse and performs tricks while the horse with a rider sprints through a course. And like sled dog racing, it remains a very popular event, just not in the Olympics. There's also been events like the Winter Pentathlon and Military Patrol, both of which combine several different activities like cross-country skiing and shooting all together. The most deadly of all Olympic sports was alpinism, which I've mentioned a few times before. It was a sport for which medals were usually awarded for significant achievements that happened outside of the Olympics. The first medal in 1924 went to the team who attempted to scale Mount Everest. It was never awarded much, and when it was, some of the medals were posthumous, and there were concerns that the award's mere existence could encourage dangerous scaling attempts, which is one reason that it was retired. Another sport that was never quite part of the Olympics because of how dangerous it is, is speed skiing. So in the downhill skiing events that you can watch on TV this week, you'll see the athletes topping out around 85, 90 miles an hour, which is you know, really freaking fast for a human on a couple of pieces of wood. But in speed skiing, they go even faster. The record set in 2016 by Italian Ivan Origoni is 158 miles per hour. Or as the Financial Times puts it, quote, Usain Bolt ran 100 meters in 9.58 seconds. Origoni skied the 100 meter timing zone near the bottom of a course in 1.41 seconds. End quote. 
But none of that is happening at the Olympics now. Speed skiing was a demonstration event at the 1992 Winter Games in France, but athlete deaths outside of competitions was enough to make the IOC wary about potential fatalities on their watch, and speed skiing has never returned to the Games. The basic idea of speed skiing is literally just going down a steep one-kilometer hill in a straight line as fast as humanly possible. And to aid aerodynamics, competitors have foam fairings attached to the calves of their very tight latex suits and wear these huge sort of triangular helmets. The Financial Times compared them to Darth Vader, but they're kind of bulkier than that, or at least they used to be. When I watched a few speed skiing videos online, the weird helmets honestly stood out to me more than the astronomical speeds. And speed skiing is probably up there with sled dog racing as one of the sports on this list that still has the biggest competitive following. But like sled dog racing, I think it's just a risk that the IOC doesn't want to take. There are, however, two skating events I would love to see return that I don't think would pose any safety concerns for animals or humans. First is synchronized skating, which is exactly what it sounds like. 8 to 16 competitors performing on ice all together, just like synchronized swimming but for figure skating. The other one is special figures skating, in which a skater not only performs a choreographed number, but also carves art into the ice with their skates while they do it. How cool would that look? You know, especially nowadays with our ability to mount cameras on the ceiling, we could see the artwork come to life as the athlete come artist creates it. It's apparently only been in the Olympics once in the 1908 Winter Games as a men's-only sport, and the sport itself dropped in popularity as the 20th century went on, so I don't know if there are many people who still practice it, but personally, I think that would be a super cool one to bring back. And speaking of mixing art and athleticism, one sport that's been getting some buzz online recently is ballet skiing, or ski ballet. Now, like speed skating, some of you may remember this from the 1992 games in France, as well as the 1988 games in Calgary. At both, it was a demonstration sport. To keep it in Olympic terms, it's kind of like figure skating, but with skis on a slight slope. Competitors use their poles to perform forward flips and maneuver into all kinds of impressive spins and dance moves while blasting popular music and sometimes adorning their more typical ski suits with a bit of sparkle or feathers. Though it didn't have its brief moment in the Olympic spotlight until the late 80s, ballet skiing has its roots in the overall counterculture of the 60s and 70s. Bob Howard, a three-time world champion in ballet skiing, told the New York Times, quote, Skiing had its own youth movement, end quote. Or as Leslie Anthony, author of A History of the Modern Ski Culture, said, The young adults who got into ballet skiing and all other forms of freestyle skiing, replete with tricks and spins and jumps, literally just wanted to go against the grain of how their parents were skiing. I also like how another ballet skiing champion, Genia Fuller, described it, quote, we brought music to the mountains. To be able to put on a show in that setting and to get people to feel what you're feeling through the music and the movement, well, dancers know it's an amazing feeling, end quote. And I especially like that description of getting people to feel what you're feeling in terms of alpine sports. This was the first year I really noticed how many competitors, especially the snowboarders, have earbuds in while they're competing. And of course, that makes everyone curious what they're listening to that pumps them up for their big run. Chloe Kim was apparently listening to Motorsport by Migos, Cardi B, and Nicki Minaj on the run that won her her second gold medal. 
But something about knowing that they're all rocking out to a song kind of in their own world while we watch them from afar, just listening to their boards or skis against the snow and the commentators try to explain to us what's going on, it reminded me of the dissonance between what we're seeing and what they're experiencing. I saw a tweet recently joking that there should be one average recreational level person included in each Olympic event so that the audience really gets a sense of just how mind-blowingly impressive all of these athletes are, just how difficult what they're doing really is. Like, it's easy for us to watch someone falter when we're sitting on our couch and judge them for that, maybe forgetting for a minute that we could probably never ever do what they can. So something that brings you in a little bit more to the athlete's world, to get to see their passion and emotion a bit more is a cool idea to me. Not that a dance routine will always achieve all of that because it too has the element of performance and technical skill, but I do like Fuller's point about at least trying to get people watching to feel what the competitor is feeling. Because people who are doing any of these sports are in love with them, obsessed with them, and using a bit more artistry to convey that passion is a cool concept. But alas, ski ballet never made it as an official Olympic sport for a few reasons. For one, while ski ballet competitions and performances were all the rage for a bit in the 70s and 80s, it was pretty much past its peak by the time it made it to the 1988 and the 1992 Olympics as a demonstration sport. Its popularity outside of the Olympics was already waning. And its free-flowing creative spirit also didn't mesh too well with the objective rubrics of the Olympics. Quoting the New York Times, The International Olympic Committee seemed uncertain how to create objective judging criteria for ballet. The IOC wanted points, scores, and time, said Bob Howard, who coached skiers at the 1988 and 1992 Olympics. But so much of ballet was interpretive. The addition of more rules and formalized elements, some borrowed from figure skating, crowded Olympic ballet skiers into an uncomfortable box, spawning the technically impressive but artistically stunted routines that now transfix online audiences, end quote. There was a little bit of a vicious cycle there that a few of the aforementioned sports have faced. There weren't enough people competing to justify it as an Olympic event, and then because it wasn't in the Olympics, the competitions declined as well. There are constant campaigns to revive some of these sports. There was a pretty strong rumor that synchronized skating would make a return for the current Winter Games. But for now, you'll just have to relive them on YouTube and TikTok, where there are countless videos forever resurfacing of these jaw-dropping and head-scratching sports. I put a couple in the show notes to start your journey. So a couple of weeks ago, I told you about the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket stage that was on track to hit the moon next month, ending a chaotic orbit that it's been on for seven years. Well, it turns out that it's not a SpaceX rocket stage after all. So the piece from the Falcon 9 rocket that had been the prime suspect here came from the launch of the NOAA's Deep Space Climate Observatory mission, or DISCOVER, D-S-C-O-V-R, DISCOVER. SpaceX, being a company that lots of people love to criticize, got a lot of flack when experts announced an upper stage of the rocket from the DISCOVER launch would be unintentionally slamming into the moon. But we all may have spoken too soon. Quoting Ars Technica, 
Bill Gray, who writes the widely used Project Pluto software to track near-Earth objects and was the original source for the Falcon 9 hitting the moon story, acknowledged the error on his website Saturday. He explained that back in 2015, he and other observers found an unidentified object in the sky and gave it a temporary name, WE0913A. Further observations suggested it probably was a human-made object, and soon the second stage of the rocket used to launch Discover became a prime candidate. It was engineer John Giorgini at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory who realized this object was not, in fact, the upper stage of a Falcon 9 rocket. He wrote to Gray on Saturday morning explaining that Discover spacecraft's trajectory did not go particularly close to the moon. The second stage would therefore be extremely unlikely to strike the moon. This prompted Gray to dig back into his data and identify other potential candidates, end quote. And he found one. A piece of the Long March 3C rocket used by China on their Chang'e 5T1 mission, which launched just a few months before Discover, and the timing and lunar trajectory of which is almost an exact match for the orbit of the object in question. Gray said on his site that this is still circumstantial evidence, but that he thinks it is fairly convincing. And from The Verge, quote, Despite the confusion about the object's identity, Gray says this is just further proof that we need more information about these rocket boosters that go to deep space. As Gray argues, some people's general attitude towards these kinds of objects is that we don't need to pay attention to them once they're in space since they're so far out in orbit. As of now, no formal entity is consistently tracking leftover rockets like this that go into deep space trajectories. The only folks that I know of who pay attention to these old rocket boosters are the asteroid tracking community, he says. This sort of thing would be considerably easier if there was some regulatory environment where they had to report something. But as it stands, it's always a certain amount of detective work that goes into figuring these things out. End quote. And it should be noted that this particular case only got so much attention because just about anything SpaceX does, especially if it can be criticized, does get attention. But at the same time, the attention is what led Giorgini at JPL to hear about it and realize that it didn't add up with what he remembered about Discover's trajectory. And I guess the case requiring attention to properly solve the mystery really does prove Gray's point that some more regulation around this sort of thing wouldn't go amiss. And a reminder in case you missed the earlier segment on this, this rocket stage hitting the moon is not a dangerous thing. NASA even intentionally shot a rocket upper stage to the moon on purpose once to study what happened. And if we can get the timing right with impact on March 4th, hopefully we'll be able to study the effects of this one too. But as for that Falcon 9 rocket stage, well, it's still out there somewhere, continuing on its chaotic orbit. Just a little bit of good news to round out today's show. Guinea worm disease is very close to being eradicated in humans with only 14 cases reported last year. The guinea worm is a parasite that causes painful skin lesions that last up to six weeks and can sometimes prevent walking. The disease particularly affects poor communities without safe drinking water, and there is no drug treatment for it or vaccine to prevent it. But efforts in tracking and the use of pesticides and other interventions have brought case numbers down from 3.5 million across 20 countries in the 1980s to just over a dozen in 2021. Now, while enormous strides have been made, there is still concern about animal infections. Quoting Nature, 
Julie Swan, a disease modeler at North Carolina State University, isn't entirely convinced that eradication is possible. She says that it's hard to control diseases that have animal reservoirs, pointing out that there were 790 reported cases of guinea worm infection in dogs in Chad alone last year. But animal cases were also down by 45% in 2021, and Adam Weiss, director of the Guinea Worm Eradication Program of the Carter Center in Georgia, remains optimistic that eradication is within reach. He says that eradication programs are tackling animal reservoirs by tethering dogs to curb the spread of the parasites. Weiss adds that baboons are probably contracting guinea worm from water contaminated by dogs, so controlling the parasite in dogs could help to rein in its spread in wildlife. I absolutely believe guinea worm is eradicable, he says. It'll take more work, but if we couldn't do it, I'd be the first one to say it. End quote. If and when guinea worm disease is truly eradicated, nature notes that it will join rinderpest and smallpox as the only diseases purposefully eradicated in human history. And that is certainly something to celebrate. While someone calls Samuel L. Jackson, an Air Asia flight traveling from Kuala Lumpur had to make an emergency landing because of an actual snake on the plane. A video on TikTok showed the snake visible inside an overhead light, and Air Asia's chief security officer confirmed to CNN that an incident did occur on that flight, it was diverted and then disinfected, and no guests were ever in danger. As NPR happily reminds us, quote, It's not the first time snakes have found their way onto passenger flights. In 2019, a woman traveling home to Scotland from Australia encountered a nasty surprise when she went to unpack and found a snake curled up in her luggage. There was even an occasion where a pilot had to conduct an emergency landing after finding a snake in the cockpit. End quote. Cool, cool, cool. Thanks for that, NPR. But uh, on that note, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.